This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week via Zoom, this is a real treat. The gentleman from Indiana, Tom Rosnowski. Tom, thanks for being on Big Talk. A pleasure, Michael. Tom Rosnowski is, well, he's Bloomington as far as I'm concerned. He's one of the first people that I met here when I came here in 2009, late 2009, and by the way, you and I have a very similar arrival seasons uh, for Bloomington. I came in the end of September, and you came sometime in November. We'll go into that, Tom. Tom Rosnowski, a singer, a songwriter, a performer, a storyteller, an author. He has created original songs. He's written books. He's a master of radio essays and interviews. He's done short subject films. He's written magazine articles. Is there anything you haven't done, Tom? I haven't played shortstop for the Chicago Cubs. You are a big baseball fan. That is America. America from yours and my youth. That's right. Well, it, baseball is so marvelous on so many levels, Michael, and, and I we share that affection. One of the things I like about it, of course, is that it has no clock. It, of course, follows the season. You know, it, it starts in the spring, ends in the fall. So right. it parallels the harvest and the planting season. And the elements that they use to create the tools of the trade, leather and hickory and horse hide, the classic stuff, all have to do with nature. So, yeah, the sand and the infield. So I, I have a great affection for baseball, yeah. We talk about it whenever we run into each other. We've had a lot to talk about of late. Uh, the, the baseball season, as all the other sports have been uh, uh, messed up, by the COVID-19 thing, the pandemic, the lockdown. It just kills me to see these games with no fans in the stands, Tom. Yes. It, that, well, it, it's the immediacy of it. And you know this, of course, because you've been to many baseball games. Uh, it's a completely different experience to be in the stands and watch the baseball game unfold in front of you like a performance on a stage. One of the good things about this pandemic baseball season, I've heard a number of people mention this to me, those who've watched the games on television, you can hear the players talking to each other. That's right. Which is something you only hear if you're in the stands, strangely yeah. enough. Yeah. So that brings the intimacy of the game to individuals in a way that hasn't been available before. Yeah, it was a truncated season, and I'm, I'm glad they got to play. I grew up with it like you did. My first memory of baseball, strangely, had nothing to do with the game itself. Um, <laughs> I think I was, I would have been eight, maybe. 
I started collecting baseball cards. And that year, the baseball cards that Topps, the company that prints them, put out had these vibrant colors. They were um, the portraits of the ball players on the front were framed in these vibrant colors, just bright yellows and greens and black. And and I was just fascinated. I would associate <laughs> players with the colors. And they had, of course, those very ornate logos for the Cincinnati Reds. You know, the one, the baseball with the mustache. And yeah, Mr. Red. Yeah. Mr. Red. I, I just had a real affection for the dreaminess of the game before I actually started to play it. I was in Little League like a lot of kids. And you talk about the influence of America globally. And I think the two areas where America has been at its best in terms of representing itself and its culture would be popular music and baseball. And I think the world has embraced so much that we've offered to the world, especially with regard to consumerism and uh, approach to the environment, which is regrettable. But those two things, yeah, they shine. It's funny you should mention that, Tom, because that makes me think that when I was eight years old, the big news in American pop music was that it wasn't American. It was the British invasion, if you recall. Yes. The Beatles, the Stones, all of those groups coming over with styles and haircuts and different ways of playing. And American pop music was affected by something from across the sea. Well, and, and the British, especially when it comes to American music styles, there was a whole generation, post-war generation there, not just the Beatles and the fact that they adored Little Richard, for instance, but also the Stones and their reverence for the blues. Right. And in many ways, there are numerous stories about this. You know Steve Philbeck. Um, Steve has has shared his stories of delivery trucks showing up in London to record stores and having the latest release by Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf or Sonny Boy Williamson on the back and kids waiting for that to be unloaded from the truck. They wouldn't even wait for it to get on the floor of the store. Wow. And that degree of thirst and reverence for the blues Certainly, that would have been available in certain neighborhoods uh, in the United States, but to have it embraced culturally by the British, and I mentioned earlier when we were talking about how the French uh, especially have a great, great devotion to American jazz. Yes. And uh, some of that, I think, had to do with Josephine Baker and her introducing African-American rhythms and an African-American presence. Uh, Brick Top is another individual African-American singer who had a club, I believe, in Paris. Their approach 
to American music, American culture, in many ways, Jerry Lewis notwithstanding, uh, teaches us a lot about our culture that I don't think we know. Here's Tom Rosnowski, our guest this week, telling tales, telling the story. He also gets other people to tell the stories and has done that many's the time through many media. You know, the interesting thing, Tom, is uh, you would think you and I should be rivals. We both try to get people to open up and tell their tales on different radio stations, you and I. You know, you'd almost think we wouldn't be on speaking terms. But uh, then again, hey, we're pals. You know, we enjoy seeing each other. I guess what I could conclude from that, Tom, is that there are enough stories in this town, Bloomington, for you and I both to, to make a living off of them. Well, that's a great observation, Michael. Uh, that, that was the basis, I think, of Hometown, which focused on two years in Terre Haute, Indiana, in 1926 and 1927. And if you just picked that place and time out of a hat, put them together, I think a lot of people would um, draw a blank. But you know this. Anytime that you're around people and explore their lives at any point in time, wherever they are in the world, you're going to come up with some fascinating stories. Mm -hmm. And um, we were talking earlier about just scratching the surface of what's available right now, what you can access musically. Let's go to the book corner where you've spent considerable time. Yes. In the back, to the left, uh, what I call the Great Wall of Wisdom, the penguin displays of thousands of titles from penguin classics. Right. I like to window shop there, mainly because it reminds me just how deep, how broad the content is out there. And you're just talking about books. We're not even talking about movies. We're not talking about music. All of those genres have been around for decades, books for centuries. There's so much out there. And there's a certain humility, I think, that comes from stories and created work when you start to absorb just how much there is and how little time you've got to access it and absorb it. It makes you realize you're never going to run out. I always tell people that there will always be something for you to read. Yes. No yes. matter how much you do read already. That's right. And, and uh, you can stretch yourself if you want. Or you can follow a particular passion that you have with regard to subject matter or a period of time. And you still won't scratch the surface. There's just so much out there. The great scholars who focus on particular cultures, particular time periods, they will be the first ones to tell you. I haven't read everything. I, I, I want to, but it's impossible. There's so much out there. Far from being a source of frustration, that gives you a certain reassurance 
that you're never going to run out of a great story or a, a great song that you haven't heard. I, I think that's what invited me in in the first place. You know, that reminds me of a story I heard about Umberto Eco, the author. Uh, he was noted for having just an enormous personal library. It was either 20,000 or 30,000 books that he had in his own home, in his personal library. And someone came in once and said, my gosh, have you read all these books? And Umberto Eco said, well, of course not. That's not the point. It's not That's the point right. to have read them. The point is, I'm going to get at them, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And someone told me once, they were talking about the bookshelves in their private room that they had filled floor to ceiling. And the same question came up. Have you read these books? This particular author uh, was um, getting on in years, so the question of what are you going to do with these books when you pass came up. And her response was, you know, one of the reasons I have them here is just a glance at them from time to time tells me where I've been, what the journey was that got me to this point. Yeah. And I think that's a, a really wonderful, comforting perspective to be able to have when you've lived long enough and you it, it happens with books, it happens with movies, it happens with music, it happens with people. You know this, you get to a certain point and you start to think of the people whose casual interactions with you shaped your life in a dramatic way. Yes. That's inevitable. I think it's just really critical to visit your own personal history because in some ways, like the Buddhists say, you're consulting your death. Hmm. You're realizing that this life is finite. It has a story of its own to tell. And by having books on a shelf, by having racks of CDs, that uh, some of which I haven't really gotten to yet. That's in some ways a reflection of where I've been, where my values are. That's a good thing to consult from time to time. You know, that also makes me think that from, from my earliest memory, I don't know why, I'm weird in this sense, but I always realized that I lived a mortal life, that I was going to die. And I, I basically made a lot of important life decisions based on this. How will I feel about this when I'm on my deathbed? Will I be proud of this? Will I feel that this has made my life worthwhile? What about you? Have you ever thought about your own end and how your life led to it? Well, yeah, it's not fiction, which is perhaps the biggest challenge with it. I think people who create generally are obsessive. You have to be obsessive because ultimately yeah. creating forms, you're in control of it. And you're not only comfortable with that, 
but you're hungry to repeat the process. And real life is the opposite of that. You can't yeah. control it. You would be a fool to try. But in, in some ways, there is there's a courage involved that I don't have nearly enough of to experience life and to invite it into your daily existence in a way that sometimes is risky, uh, sometimes is disappointing, but ultimately informs and enriches your experience on earth. As a writer, I find one of the biggest problems that I have is knowing when to stop. Knowing when to stop a project. Is it ever finished? The truth is no project is ever finished. No book, no painting, no play, no song. And I've got a little sign that's right here on my desk that says, quote, it will never be perfect. And that's what keeps me going because you strive for this perfection, but you can never attain it. And if you keep on striving for it, you'll never be finished. How do you know when you're finished writing a song? It, it tells me. It tells me. Um, you sense it. Yeah. You, you touched on something pretty important there earlier, just in terms of that compulsion or that conviction to improve it, polish it, Yes. Define it in some way. I, I, I think good writers have that. A lot of excellent writers who I admire tell me how important the editing process is. Yes. Your ability to read and reread. And I, I remember uh, Eudora Welty, a wonderful Southern writer, uh, short stories. She used to actually type her first drafts out and then. <laughs> like your editing process, she would cut out sentences and rearrange them, paragraphs and sentences and lines. And she would have all these strips of words to this story, this short story, and she would rearrange them like a puzzle. Huh. And I don't know what that did. It probably created more space than content, but that's the point. You you want to have a piece of work breathe. So if, if you want it to breathe, ultimately there are things that you don't say or you don't sing. And that's a big jazz concept with soloists, is right. the space between the notes. Yes. And I, I think that goes with writing too. Let the listener or the reader fill it in. Yeah. And, and of course, you have to trust whoever's listening or reading your work. Because in most cases, you'll never meet them. Right. They'll, they will be absorbing your work, reacting to it. You'll never hear about it. And that's, that's great. But ultimately, what that means is you're trusting the work. You're trusting them. And that interaction between them and your work is a huge motivation to keep writing or keep singing. Now, Tom Rosnowski, 
as I said earlier, he, he, he lives and breathes the Midwest, lives and breathes Indiana and Bloomington. Heck, he is uh, uh, almost equated with the town name Terre Haute. Uh, his book, uh, An American Hometown, it was a result of your hometown radio series uh, based on life in Terre Haute in the 1920s. I love this. There was a, an author by the name of Howard Mansfield who on Goodreads uh, said this about your book. Tom Rosnowski has deployed the city directory of Terre Haute like a mist net across time to capture a vanished place. Terre Haute, 1927, is more alive than many American cities today. That is beautiful praise. Yeah, Howard's an excellent writer. Apparently so are you. Well, we were talking about this earlier, about any place in time. You know, D Detroit in 1908, what does that mean? I mean, there's some that are easy, Michael. Yeah. You're talking about New York City in 1957. Right. A whole host of images come up. Those are easy. Paris yeah. in the 1920s, you got those. Yeah. But if, if you choose a certain city in a certain place and time where nothing remarkable in terms of history happened, well, then you get down to everyday life. The old Polk directories, I don't even know if they published them anymore, used to have addresses for every place in town, who lived there, their marital status, and their occupation. <laughs> Ultimately, what else do you need to know about people? If you, if you know the town well enough, if you've been investigating it enough, there will be connections uh, made very easily. It also tells you, in spite of the fact that that's a little over 90 years ago, which is just an eye blink in terms of history, right. it was a different planet Yes, Terre Haute is now what we deal with. Yeah. And that, that to me is fascinating as well. When I started the radio series, in 1997, I think, there were still people alive who'd been young adults in 1927, so I could consult them. And that was where the best perspectives came from. It wasn't books or newspapers. Right. I scour those, of course, because you get facts, you get a different perspective. But individuals who bore witness to Terre Haute in 1927, those are the th stories you want to hear, in spite of the fact that everybody that I talked to, asking them to tell me about their lives back then, would usually start off by saying, oh, I never did anything important. Yeah, yeah. Here in my life. Well, that's just the simple things, like how the uh, name of a business is pronounced, the, the name. There was one... Now, Frank Lesser was a, a wonderful songwriter, and L-O-E-S-S-E-R, it's a German name, and there was a business in Terre Haute's downtown, and of course, I called it Lesser's, 
But I realized one day talking to someone, it was Lozier. That was yeah. how everybody said it because that's probably the German pronunciation. Right. And, and um, Frank just anglicized it. You know, the first time I went into Terre Haute, I said to myself, I didn't see anybody on the streets, first off. And I said, my God, it's almost like a ghost town. But as I looked around, I said, you know what? This place was at one time huge and bustling. And there was so much going on here at one time. You could tell. And I feel the same often when I go through small towns here in southern Indiana. And I go around the square. And I think to myself, remember when people used to live up on the second floor? Yes. And remember when everybody came downtown to the square to go to the hardware store, to get a haircut, to go to the pharmacy? How exciting that must have been for a kid to go downtown in those days. And how exciting Terre Haute must have been. Well, yeah. And one of the strange aspects of the way that Terre Haute presented itself in the 1920s is so much of it in terms of how it supported daily life out of necessity, not design, is concurrent with how we consider a sustainable city now uh-huh. because there was mass transit it was very walkable yep individuals very often were able to walk from their homes to their place of employment that was common all of those things in a strange way create lessons for us i think one of the um big mistakes that was made uh there are a number of reasons for it not the least of which are people's preferences but you know this because you just mentioned going to these small towns in indiana illinois throughout the midwest a lot of them are shadows of their selves you know the, the a lot of empty storefronts individuals who live there and don't work there or vice versa, work there and don't live there. And I, I think diminishing that infrastructure, that social infrastructure of small towns, what I mean by small towns, towns, Terre Haute right now is, I, I think, about 65,000 people, something along those lines. Uh-huh. It, it, under 100,000, well, under 100,000 to maybe 5,000 or uh, half that, 2,000. Towns that fit between those parameters have really suffered over the past century. Yes. And I, I think it's really taken away a lot of the integrity of the United States as a place to live, as a place of identification. You can identify being an American, but if there isn't a genuine connection with the place where you wake up every day and go to sleep at night. You're missing something. Tune in next week for part two of our conversation with Tom Rosnowski. Tom Rosnowski, our guest here on Big Talk. Tom, I thank you so much for being on the show. Michael, I enjoyed this very much. 